Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Primal Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, and anti-aging supplement, available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, L. Russ. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have the author, Dr. Peter Osborne, who is a doctor of chiropractic and functional medicine and a board-certified clinical nutritionist who wrote an amazing book called No Grain, No Pain. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Elle. It's great to be here. I really loved your book. It, Even though you know everyone at the Primal Blueprint, we were very aware of the issues that grains cause, even though I know what I know, reading your book re-inspired me and it honestly also put even that little bit of fear. You know, when you really look at the evidence, it's pretty scary. I want to start off with, we're going to get into all sorts of details here, but I want to start off with a, a really crazy, compelling story that you open up your book with that I'd like you to share with people about the little girl who Make-A-Wish Foundation was already ready to sponsor on her, you know, trip to go see whales because her situation was so bad. Can you tell us that story? Because I find it really compelling. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, her name was Ginger and she she was brought to me by her mother and um, she had this diagnosis of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which is a form of autoimmune disease that impacts the joints severely. And in her case, it was really impacting her internal organs as well. But she had a permanent stent embedded in her arm because she was in and out of the hospital so frequently they had to IV her up to save her life a number of times. But the doctors basically sent her home to die. I mean, they they sent her home with her mom and said, look, you've got about six months, you know, go ahead and start planning it. And there was nothing, no solution. There was no viable medical treatment or anything that they had to offer up to her, her mom. And so when she brought her in to see me, you know, in my clinic and in, in outside of Houston, I do a lot of advanced testing. And so one of the tests that we ran was we ran a test to look at, at gluten sensitivity and, um, and, and as, your, as your audience probably knows what gluten is, it's that family of proteins and grains, but we, we tested her for gluten sensitivity. She was positive. And um, so I might, you know, my next piece of advice for her mom was, was basically, let's get, the, let's get the gluten out of this little girl's diet and, and um, we're going to see some changes in turnaround, I think. But her mom didn't want, she didn't want to take her gluten free. And this was the, one of the crushing parts is that you know, here we have this terminal case, but here your mom is saying, okay, my child is about to die. I want, I want the next six months to be about my child. Well, this little girl's favorite food was pizza. And so you can only imagine, mm. you know, having your child and be in that scenario, you wouldn't want to take away their favorite food. And so it, I wasn't able to convince her to take her gluten-free, but I was able to, to get her to go gluten-free because she had had a prior diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. So now we're able to get the mom to go gluten-free and she does it for about a month and she makes such a striking turnaround in her health that she's now ready to say, okay, I don't care if this is her favorite food or not, we're going, we're going gluten-free. And so within, literally within a matter of months, uh, we were able to have the stent removed 
and um, and we were able to do a full turnaround in this young girl. And today, this this girl's actually getting ready to graduate high school, and uh, the stents out. You know, the life sentence is gone. She's doing great. There's no more JRA. It's all gone. JRA, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. It's gone. You know, in all for all intents and purposes, you could say it's healed or cured. I know doctors tend to shy away from using terms like that, but I mean, in actuality, she doesn't require medications and she's completely asymptomatic. What else would you call it? That's right. If you but, take away the trigger, then the problem won't exist. And what a compelling story. Someone literally on their deathbed and all it had to do was with a food group that she was putting into her body. And as simple as that, it's really amazing. Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. One of my one of my favorite patients and stories, just just because of the you know the touching response, the the unbelievable response. And I've seen that in a number of other patients in the last fifteen years. It's not so. It's not like an isolated fluke event. And I, I want to be very clear about that. A lot of people say, "Oh, well, this is just an anecdote that some chiropractor down in Texas is raving about." It's not. I mean, I've got a I've got a, a patient base of over five thousand people with successful autoimmune recovery stories. And you said 70% of your clients reacted to gluten. That is a huge percentage of that large base. Yeah, I mean, I, what we're known for is, is autoimmune disease itself. So, I mean, people that come to see me, come to see me. That I'm not the first doctor. They, they've they already been handed around to eight or nine clinics and experts and specialists. And, you know, there's just not been an answer for them. The medications haven't worked. The medical treatments haven't worked. And so they're kind of at a loss as to where to turn and where to look. And that's where we step in. And we really, we really just take, you know, we take diet manipulation to a very advanced level through biochemical testing, genetic testing, and and other unique aspects of, of you know, objective data. Yeah. And before I get, we're going to jump right into all about grains and inflammation and obesity. But one of the things I like your approach, you know, is that, you know, you stated your goal is to find the origin of a disease, not just simply treating the symptoms. And that's what everybody should be looking at um, because most doctors are prescriptionists and they're looking to just put a Band-Aid on something and not look at why the problem exists. And I think it's really important to find a functional medicine doctor when you've tried everything and things haven't worked. And that's why you doctors get people who've gone to 15 doctors. You had one patient who spent $40,000 and went to like 14 doctors. And again, this was just a, a simple fix. That person was better within two weeks of years of suffering. So let's get right into the grain stuff. Let's talk about, uh, give us the connection between grain, inflammation, and weight gain. Yeah, so, you know, for, for so many people, the grain consumption itself, and so I, I want to be clear, there's there's this term gluten sensitivity and then there's just the inherent properties of grain itself. You know, some of the detrimental food qualities, or I should say, anti-food properties of grain. But when I'm t- so when I'm talking about grain inflammation or grain and inflammation, it's it's you know there are many factors that cause inflammation as a result of grain consumption. One of them is the family of proteins found within grains called glutens. There are you know at least a thousand known forms of gluten. And they're found in all different kinds of grains and, and different varieties different um, in different types. So those themselves have been found in a number of studies, you know, as we as relates to celiac disease and rheumatoid arthritis and dermatomyositis and reactive arthritis and fibromyalgia, all these different autoimmune conditions, including hypothyroidism, um, have been linked to gluten 
as a culprit in creating an inflammatory response that triggers an autoimmune disease. And part of that is through leaky gut and part of that is through just the immune system, the innate immune system recognizing these gluten proteins as an enemy of the body and launching an assault on this enemy and as a byproduct of that launch, um, inflammation, uh, collateral, what we call collateral inflammation or collateral damage to their internal tissues ensues in an inflammatory damage that becomes chronic as long as they continue to consume those grains. Yeah. And on the Hashimoto's note, which is is great because we're seeing a lot of success. I, I have seen success with people of Hashimoto's. And here's the, the problem with that is let's say someone is on thyroid medication and they've had their Hashimoto's managed, they're feeling good. They will not feel the rise and fall of the antibodies in their system, but the fact that they are there equals inflammation. So it's a hidden trap. And I have friends who've gone primal, paleo, grain-free, and the numbers have gone from the hundreds on the antibody Hashimoto's test down to less than 70, and you can even get them down to zero in some cases where it doesn't even look as though the person has Hashimoto's. It is so compelling because in these scenarios, you can literally see the success based on the blood work, based on the antibodies being present or not. And so it's a little bit of a silent killer. And some people say, well, aren't antibodies great? And you're like, no, actually, you don't want uh, high levels of antibodies in your system because that equals inflammation. And I think people don't understand that. And so, um, yeah, the grain connection with Hashimoto's is, is so clear and so many people reach so much success. I know you've had it yourself in your practice with people with Hashimoto's. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the common things, people that will come to see me, they won't come to see me because of Hashimoto's per se, they'll come to see me for 10 other reasons and they'll have that history in their diagnosis, that, that background of having that condition as well. And then as we monitor it, uh, yeah, like you said, we see antibodies drop to zero, we see antibodies completely go away. It's, um, it's not even really all that complicated of a disorder to, to alleviate. Let's talk about sort of the test because there's a lot of people that are like, oh, whatever, 3% of the population have celiac or, or, you know, they're quoting this stuff out of thin air and they're making fun of people that go gluten-free and everyone doesn't have celiac. And here's the thing. I am a perfect example. And I'm sure you've seen people like this. I've taken my genetic tests. I've gotten tested. I don't technically have on blood or paper something that says this person has an issue with grains yet I do. And the same thing for dairy, my genetic makeup and everything would say, you probably have a high tolerance for dairy, and I don't. And so I think at the end of the day, and especially with your 30-day program, it's one of these things too, where if you don't have a direct correlation, like my stomach's not cramping or everything, but there's these slight symptoms, right? The bloating and the gas and other things that are just not working out right. The only way to really assess that is by eliminating it and see what how you feel at the end of that month. Because that's what happened to me. Until I really eliminated it from my life, I didn't realize how much it was affecting my life. And I'm sure you see a lot of that. Can you talk about the different tests and, and, and you know, sensitivity versus actual celiac and, and how this pans out? Yeah. So, I mean, we've, there are a number of different diagnostic tools, objective tools that can be used to discern these kinds of differences because some people have an allergy, some people have a sensitivity and some people have what's called an intolerance and they're they're not the same thing although those three terms are oftentimes used interchangeably even among doctors who aren't really all that much experts in the differences 
So as if we look at an allergy, there is the classic allergy that's considered to be, you know, the anaphylactic reaction, the kid with the peanut response, right? He eats the peanut, his lips swell, his throat constricts. They have to inject epi epinephrine in him in the hospital to save his life. That's not what most people have as we're, as we're talking about, because I mean, most people with that kind of a reaction know it. They don't need a test. They, they could tell you the last time I ate shellfish, I, I was in the hospital. So that's an acute allergy, but then there's, and so that's one way that we can have an allergic response. There are six other ways we can have an allergy, and all of these other six ways are what are called delayed hypersensitivity response pathways. And so an example would be IgG and IgM and IgA. Another example would be what's called immune complexes. Another example is a direct T cell response, and these are all measurable, but most Allergists will not measure any of these things. They'll only measure a skin prick where they're looking for that acute, you know, uticarial flare, that, that, that basic life-threatening allergic response. And so a delayed allergy can create low-grade inflammation. It's relatively asymptomatic. And so it, um, you know, it festers over time. It's kind of like, okay, I like to use the exercise analogy, and I, and I know your audience will probably appreciate this because they understand that exercise is important. If you don't exercise today, it's not a big deal. You can exercise tomorrow, but if you don't exercise for a whole month, now there's going to be some physiological changes in your body that are working against you, that are working in the negative. And then if you multiply that by 12 months and then 24 months, you know the accumulation of lack of activity turns into disease. Well, and the same thing can be said for delayed food allergies. The accumulation of persistent intake of foods that cause low-grade inflammation in your body use up your body's resources and deteriorate your body's resources until your body can no longer can continue to adapt to the environment in a successful way, and that's what we call disease. When the body loses its ability to adapt, those are symptoms. When we have enough symptoms, we call that syndromes, and when we have a big enough syndrome, we actually start to classify that into a disease category. But it takes years for that kind of stuff to start to manifest. So a delayed there's a, so again there's a there's six ways we can have a delayed allergy, and all that is testable. That all that is you you can actually run lab tests to measure that, and then you have what's called a sensitivity. Now a sensitivity is also an immune response, just like an allergy, but it's a different, completely different side of the immune system that's responsible for this type of reaction. Most experts believe that a sensitivity is a, what's called an innate immune response, a, a different pathway altogether. There's, there's the antibody pathway in which we, had, we have what's called our adaptive immune system or our humoral immune system, which is the immune system. Uh, so if you get exposure to the measles or mumps or something along that, you produce antibodies, you adapt to the disease and you create a defensive mechanism to protect yourself and then you have protection. That's adaptive. But the innate immune system is what you're born with. It's the set of things that you're given at birth for your immune system to protect you. And so gluten sensitivity is a perfect example of a, it's not a disease, but it's a state of genetics. You, If you have gluten sensitive genes, then your innate immune system looks at gluten as an enemy and it creates an innate immune response that leads to inflammation. So, but, but, when doctors are measuring gluten sensitivity, they're not measuring the innate immune system. They're measuring the humoral immune system. So a lot of people fall through that diagnostic crack and can and can get told, and that's probably where you fell, is that you probably were, you know, if you did some testing, you probably 
uh, were shown that, hey, you don't really have a problem with gluten, but it was probably done in a manner consistent with looking at humoral responses versus the innate immune response. Well, and it's funny you said that because I'm actually awaiting right now. I did just get all of those blood tests you're talking about, those in-depth blood tests. And one of the recent tests that I did take was the ALCAT food sensitivity test. And when you say food sensitivity tests, I mean, food sensitivities, is that the kind of thing you're talking about versus the allergy prick test? Do you also administer a food sensitivity test? I do, but I don't use that particular lab. That lab has a proprietary technology. They use they they measure something called neutrophil burst, and um, there's no other. It's proprietary, so there's, it's it's a little bit hazy in terms of the science. Some people will will do that test and say, "Hey, their results were dead on." Other people will do that test and say, "Hey, that that test worked really well for me." Uh, we've actually double blinded that test on patients, and one of the reasons I don't use it is because under double blind, I got back a 34% different test on the same blood sample of the same patient on the, under two different names. What is the food sensitivity test that you do administer? I use a, a company out of Virginia called Eliza Act Biotechnologies, and um, it, it's a it's a platform where where your lymphocytes, your your lymphocytes or your immune, a part of your immune system cells, are actually they're they're actually taken from your blood. So you draw your blood, and we take out your lymphocytes, and then we we use something called lymphocyte proliferation, where we then go in and ask your lymphocytes what they do and don't like, um, and and we look at the responses, and so we can see whether or not the immune system is is actually, to put it simply, is actually getting angered or angry as a result of being exposed to certain items. And so we, we don't just look at food either. We also look at food additives and preservatives and dyes. We look at pesticides. We look at environmental exposure to um, certain chemicals and, and, you know, like petroleum-based chemicals, et cetera, because, you know, a lot of people have problems with those types of things as well. Yeah, and, you know, that's something that is really important because if someone's not achieving either their weight loss goals I think it's really important also for everyone to get tested for the inflammation markers because I myself had some hidden, hidden inflammation that I did not experience in any other way. It's just based on blood. That's why I did the food sensitivity test. And what was surprising is that it came back and said that the one thing that I had a severe intolerance on was cocoa, which I was eating almost every day because it's considered paleo, dark chocolate. You know, I'd sprinkle some cocoa powder on some, you know, uh, whipped cream or something like that. And, you know, here's something that I'm not even aware of, that I don't even feel the effects of. But, you know, it's just extra diagnostic tools to get down to brass tacks on where is this coming from? And you have to look at everything. I feel it's really, really important, especially when people aren't achieving their goals or blood results look off. Um, aside from immunity and gut issues and brain health, we've talked so much about how that's related on this show. I want you to get into that whole, I thought it was a very interesting discussion in your book about the prescription pain medication trap and how that works. Because I feel like people, you know, people don't think about back pain and grains connected, but any kind of pain or inflammation in your body can be affected by grains. And when you go into how it works with all of the NSAIDs and, and all the, you know, inflammation medication that people take for these things, it's really going down an even worse spiral staircase. So can you give us that little snapshot of what that looks like? Yeah, so you, you take the average person who maybe they, they hurt, their knee hurts, their back hurts, you know, they've got some generalized muscle or joint pain, 
And they've been told, instead of being told, hey, let's look for why this is going on, they've just been told, hey, you're getting older, accept it, move on, take an ibuprofen. Um, bad move because these drugs, especially the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, they actually erode. There's a there's a barrier in your GI tract called the mucosal barrier, and and it's in its mucus. There's it's basically it's like a layer of snot that coats your intestines, and um, these non-steroidals they they erode away this barrier, and it's one of the most important physical barriers of our intestine. And, it, and so that's why if you look at a bottle of ibuprofen, for example, it'll, it'll warn you against gastric and intestinal bleeding with this type of product uh, because that's what it does. It erodes that mucus and it exposes the cells underneath the mucus to potential damaging effects coming out of digestion and coming out of your food. So if you're taking these medications on a day-to-day -day basis and you're eroding your mucosal barrier, you actually are contributing to the process known as intestinal hyperpermeability or leaky gut. And so now what happens, a lot, of the, a lot of the people that have pain as a result of grain consumption already have this leaky gut. So they're just, the non-steroidals are just exacerbating it and making it worse. But the other thing these drugs do is they block vitamin C, iron, and folate. And so in order to heal cartilage, so we're talking about joint pain, in order to heal cartilage, you have to have folate. There's a there's a there's a an enzyme and there's a protein that you need folate to to complete and and produce in order to heal. And so if you're blocking that by using the medication, you're actually never going to let that joint heal. You're just going to be masking the inflammation indefinitely while you allow for that nutritional deficiency to to fester, but also allow for leaky gut to continue to allow problems. And when that leaky gut occurs, there's this process. This was this, this this has been around over 30 years that we've known about it. There's this process called molecular mimicry. So what happens is when you eat food, if you have a leaky gut, a lot of what's in your food, including bacteria and other things, can leak into your bloodstream. And uh, you know some of these things in your food might look like your joints. So for example, let's say you're eating a particular protein, and that protein that you're eating out of that chicken. Uh, which chicken can be a relatively healthy food, but let's say your gut's leaking and that chicken, your immune system is attacking it because it's leaking through instead of being properly broken down and assimilated by the, the enzymes in your gut. And it's leaking into your bloodstream. So your immune system looks at it and says, hey, this, is, this got here without going through the proper checks and balances. Let's attack it. And so your immune system over time is attacking these things leaking into your bloodstream. And if they look like your tissues, for, and in this case, the example is they look like your cartilage, then your immune system will then start to look at your cartilage as if it's an enemy and it will start attacking it. And so now you've got an autoimmune cartilage disaster on your hands as a result of taking a medication that's supposed to be blocking and, and resolving your pain, but it's actually ripping a hole in your gut and allowing for the perpetuation of a, of a permeability that then creates this process called molecular mimicry that then subsequently leads to joint pain. And I wasn't the first one that wrote about this process. This is this has been written about since the early 80s, and I can't even take credit for it, but it's a, it's a very real process, and very few doctors and very few people are aware that it even exists. I really like the discussion about inflammation and muscles, and you talking about, you know, when the body's trying to fuel its war against inflammation, your muscle bank account is going to show some withdrawals. And so if you're trying to get healthy and build muscle, right? There could be underlying things that are inhibiting your, your progress. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, one of the things that's tough is, you know, you say like obesity is inflammation and I get that. And 
it's tough for me in society. Like I agree with, you know, embrace everyone's body shape or whatever. I'm not going to, I don't judge anyone. There's people who have stuff going on in them, but at the end of the day, it really is a big problem. And to glorify or be okay with that is really sort of just, it's a medical issue. It's not just an image issue, right? Or someone not being okay with how someone looks. It's, it's really concern for these people. And um, so can you talk a little bit about obesity and inflammation and the muscle connection as well? Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that, that happens to a lot of people is they're inflamed. And as, as you're inflamed, one of the side effects of being inflamed is, is a change in your hormones and uh, your own internal hormones. And one of those hormones is cortisol. And your body, in order to fight inflammation, will produce its own cortisol. But the problem with cortisol being overproduced by your body. So what happens if you're always inflamed, your body's always trying to counter that inflammation by overproducing cortisol. Cortisol causes water retention and weight gain. It causes visceral fat storage around your abdomen and around your heart and your internal tissues. And so it creates a kind of an inflammatory type of fat, what I sometimes refer to as angry fat. And, uh, and that fat stores, or again, it's, it's visceral fat. It stores around your organs, and it's, and it's much more dangerous than just you know, overeating and overconsuming calories. But as you, as you eat foods that create inflammation, and your body is, is adapting to you eating poor foods by trying to fight the inflammation these foods are causing, one of the other mechanisms your body actually uses to fight inflammation is protein. And we use proteins to make antibodies against the foods that many of these people are eating. So your immune system is stealing, it's robbing protein from the muscle to try to fight the war against the food that you're eating because the food that you're eating, instead of being nourishing, is counter-nourishing and it's, and it's becoming a taxation on your body. In other words, your body has to now deal with the food instead of saying, thank you for the food, let me have the nourishment. It's saying, we gotta get rid of this stuff, it's causing too many problems. And so you're stealing from the muscle to feed the immune system's war against your own food. And, and L, we see this very frequently clinically in diseases like cancer, where the body begins to waste away. There's actually a name for it. It's called cachexia. It's where a person's muscle will start to basically become eroded because their body's stealing it to fight against the cancer. Right, and their body just can't absorb any nutrients at that point. If someone's you know in stage four of lymphoma or something like that, they're just wasting away. Exactly. They, and, they, and this happens. And so when you, let's say you, you, you're not dying of cancer, maybe you're, you, you just have chronic inflammation, but you're, what happens if you're trying to lose weight and you're trying to regain your health and you're working out, trying to establish a stronger, you know, lean muscle foundation, your body can't be super successful at that because the food you're eating is, is continuing this war. And so every time you work out, uh, your muscle breaks down before it builds back up. That's part of the process. And if your muscle's already being broken down to, to fight this war, you become ultra non-successful at building muscle. And, and then again, muscle is important. Why? Because it sets the metabolic rate of the body. The more lean muscle you have, the more calories you burn at rest. Uh, the more lean muscle you have, the better your lymphatic system works as a pump, or, or rather I should say, the better your body is able to pump your lymphatic uh, fluids around your body to support your immune system's proper function. So we end up in this vicious cycle of, you know, grain contributing to inflammation, causing hormonal changes, which lead to muscle degradation that then lead to immune changes that lead to further muscle degradation. So that when you go try to work out on those inflamed muscles and degraded muscles, 
not only can you become exercise intolerant, but the exercise itself can become completely ineffective and almost counterproductive in your goal at trying to restore your health. Right. In and of itself, the exercise then can even become inflammatory <laughs> if, if all of this stuff is happening. What, um, you know, you, another thing too, as well is mineral deficiencies, you know, iron, CoQ10, a bunch of others, a grain-based diet or a regular grain consuming diet, you know, can really inhibit the absorption of nutrients. And then now you're down a road where you're primed for other diseases like hypothyroidism and other things that involve these nutrient deficiencies. Um, I myself, when I was eating a grain-based diet, even though I thought I was healthy and, and doing what was right, I still, you know, had brown rice bowls and, and thought what I thought was healthy. And, you know, I ended up having a bunch of mineral deficiencies at that time. And I'm, I'm not surprised looking back that it probably was because of my gut health. Well, that there's that certainly the gut can be, you know, the grain itself can be extremely detrimental on the gut, but grain as a food is very, you know, I mean, there are nutrients within grain, but either they're bound up on, on other chemicals like phytates and oxalates. So they're not really all that readily absorbable or the grain has been so highly processed that it's no longer got those nutrients in it. And so to eat the grain is a, it's as a source of calories with a lack of nutrients. So you're eating a basically almost not an empty calorie food, but a, um, a very devoid of nutrient food. A lot of people don't realize in 1943, the United States government banned the sale of grain because it was responsible for epidemic death. Um, there were two diseases in particular. They were vitamin deficiency diseases, beriberi and pellagra, which, you know, collectively beriberi is a vitamin B1 deficiency, pellagra is a vitamin B3 deficiency, and these diseases can be terminal. But the grain was causing so much of these two diseases that the government said you can no longer sell it unless you're going to fortify it with synthetic vitamins. And so this is actually where the U.S. For food fortification of grain program came into be. And, and so what the cereal manufacturers did at the time, instead of saying, hey, don't eat us because we're killing you, they said, eat, eat more of us because now we're fortified and we're even better for you. So marketing played a big role in this. And the government was behind the grain Understand that the government subsidizes the growth of grain. It subsidizes farmers to grow grain to protect the farmers from going out of business so that the country doesn't starve. And, and you know, that, that policy was or originally created to protect small farms, small farmers who had the potential to go out of business. But most of our farms today aren't small farms. They're mass conglomerates. They're mass corporations that, that grow Gen highly genetically modified foods. They use tons of chemicals within the food supply. That, to me, they're doing it all wrong. They take the grain out of the equation and just talk about how they're growing things and how they're storing things, and it's very unethical. But the average person in the population is just not aware of these things, and so they just they believe what the commercials say. Eat your whole grains. They're good for you. All the dietitians, uh, I shouldn't say all of them, but a lot of them, you know, they they kind of stand behind that rhetoric. A lot of the doctors stand behind the rhetoric, not because they're right, but because they don't understand nutrition. The average doctor has taken less than seven hours of nutrition and nine hours of, of or nine years of schooling. But the average person doesn't know that. The average person goes to their doctor and thinks he knows about nutrition. He's a doctor, but he doesn't. Well, but even if you do go to a nutritionist that's classically trained, they will still give you the government food pyramid, six to 11 servings of grains lecture. I have had family members that went to nutritionists and they were like, you need to eat whole grains several times a day. And I mean, 
you know, just instinctively, a couple of my family members were like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So even going to a nutritionist can be detrimental because a lot of them are trained in, right, the government food pyramid uh, propaganda. I, I agree. I, th I think the, the government should stay out of health care. That's just my personal opinion. And I think people should be responsible for their own health. And part of that is being intelligent enough to pay attention to how you feel when you eat food. And part of that is being intelligent enough to go and do your own research and determine how, how best you do and react and feel as you're eating what you're eating. Right. And, and, and to look at things like, for example, I had a, knew someone who overweight, um, had gout and decided they'd rather just take a pill. And I'm sure that's what the doctor told them. And they just walked away going, I'll just take this pill forever. And then I can eat all of these things that I want to eat. And, you know, uh, everyone out there, you got to take responsibility for your own health. And you have to think about the fact that if someone's given you a pill for something, you might need to investigate what's behind that. And the fact that, you know, you can correct the situation through diet alone and that that, and again, you encourage that as the first order of business. Like, let's get that first before we talk about medicine and surgery. Um, let, I want you to talk a little bit about these, you know, the, the gluten-free foods have just become also an extra disaster because they're made with rice and corn and even other grains and soy, and they can be just, uh, just a big of a trigger to gluten sensitive people as, as like you said, a bowl of Wheaties. So let's talk about all of these hidden glutens and this gluten-free craze, because I've seen so many people be like, oh, I went gluten-free. And then they've got a box of gluten-free cookies and you look at it and it's made with brown rice flour and cornstarch. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people don't realize this is, a, this to me is probably one of the saddest things. You know, I, I'm all for convenience to a, to an extent, but you know, you, there's, there's a rule in nutrition. You can't get healthy eating food that isn't healthy. So gluten-free has taken on this connotation in our society that somehow gluten-free means healthy, but it, but it doesn't mean healthy. It, it, you know, you can buy things that are gluten-free. A can of soda is gluten-free and it isn't good for you. So, you, you know, if you're using it every day, you're probably going to have health issues. But as it relates to other grains, I, I want to clarify the definition of what gluten actually is. Gluten is not one thing. We use it as a singular term, but it's actually a plural, it's actually a plural term. It should, we should say glutens because there's more than one form of gluten. There's over a thousand forms of gluten that we know of. And as a matter of fact, in 2010, we discovered 400 new forms of gluten, 40 of which are more toxic than the type of gluten originally discovered to cause celiac disease. And, and so the, the, the research in this is, is, is growing in, at such a fast pace that the government's not changing the food laws fast enough to keep up with the research. But a lot of people don't realize that corn has a form of gluten in it. Rice has a form of gluten in it. And although they're not the same forms of gluten that are, are being blamed for celiac disease, they still cause very similar problems in people with gluten sensitivity. And corn in particular, um, there was a study done in 2012 showing that corn gluten was more reactive to people with gluten sensitivity than wheat gluten. And, and so the issue is... And I can, I can speak for myself on that. Um, honestly, even if there is, you know, unfortunately, obviously, instead of sugar, they use, they use high fructose corn syrup in a lot of products. And there was once uh, I got some just like sweet relish and I was going to make some tartar sauce. And uh, I was so stuffy and I was like, what is the deal here? Um, and then I looked at the bottle and now I make sure I only buy ones with real sugar in it and then drain it. But um, corn syrup is something that I feel like right away. And it, it just stuffs me up. It's almost, it's, it's kind of within, within an hour of eating it. 
And at first I was just so confused because I was like, what am I eating that's stuffing me up? And I realized there's just hidden high fructose corn syrup in everything. Um, so that, that's something, I mean, really, I would have everyone take a look at it. I, I get really affected by corn um, in a way that I think is even worse than uh, other grains for me personally. Yeah, well, there's that. So there's the gluten component to corn. It's been studied. It's been shown to cause the inflammatory problem. But then there's also some of the other things. Most of the corn is, that's produced is genetically modified. Now, in animal studies, we get cancer and inflammation pretty quickly. Um, but then you also add the pesticides to that, the Roundup, the atrazine, the other chemicals that farmers are using as standard procedure to, to grow and, uh, and to harvest these foods. And so you have that as a component that isn't good for you. And then you also add the way that these grains are stored. They're stored in big bins where they have a tendency to, to be sat, become saturated with mold growth. And so then this mold has the ability to produce what are called mycotoxins. There have been studies that shown that and particularly that the corn and rice-based gluten-free foods are very high in, in mold toxins. And many people react to these mold toxins just as bad as they react to gluten. And so they have problems with the mold and mold toxins. And then some of these, like uh, especially your fructose corn syrup, contains mercury. Um, rice is high in cadmium and arsenic. So you've got, it's not, I, I say that, I, one of the reasons I wrote the book, Elle, is because it's not just gluten. And everybody is so gluten fixated. And so they think if they eat a gluten-free snack, that their life is going to be suddenly better and their health is going to magically improve because they're making healthier choices as, they, as it's related to being gluten-free. But it isn't just about gluten. It's about so much more. It's about how the food's grown, where the food comes from, what else is being added to the food and the processing and the manufacturing of that food. And, and, and unfortunately, grain is, is the title of the book because grain is one of those foods in our country that has the most crap in it. And if people can just become aware of it, they can empower themselves to make dramatic health improvements just through diet change alone. One of the things that sort of stood out for me in your book too, and if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about it, was coffee and how that relates to everything. And you have some, you know, suggestions you make about the type of coffee one drinks. Can you run through that? Because, I mean, so many people love coffee. I love coffee. And people, it's a daily drink in the morning for them. So can you give that little spiel on coffee? Because I found that to be really fascinating. I think, one, coffee, there's, there's some research that shows that coffee can cross-react with gluten. I think that it should be said, though, that we don't think it's really coffee so much as it's instant coffee that you stir up in the water, in the hot water, and there's wheat filler or grain filler in that instant coffee. So if you're using a whole coffee bean, I don't think that's so much the issue. However, coffee, like corn, contains large quantities or can contain large quantities of mycotoxins. And uh, so you can get the mold aspect with the coffee as well. But the other issue in, in the primal and paleo community, it's, some, it's, it's funny how we forget, but you know the, the fundamental premise, if we look at what defines a paleo diet, it's grain-free, it's dairy-free, it's sugar-free, and it's legume-free. And coffee is a legume. It's a, it's a bean. And people forget that part. So basically, a lot of people who are having problems with legumes and the lectins and some of the other compounds in coffee... They're drinking bean juice every morning to start their day, and they're just not classifying it as a bean because it's it's not like refried beans. It's not like a bowl of beans, but it's bean juice in and of itself. So technically, in chocolate's the same way. We tend to we tend to kind of forget about those two things and move move in the direction of using ample quantities of those because 
they are addictive because they are so well loved and because of the caffeine and because of some of the other amino acids in them that can bring about happiness. Yeah, I really like that you went through that. You know, it is important to distinguish that in its food group and not try to separate it as if it's just, you know, floating in the corner on its own, not attached to a food group, which we we don't think of coffee that way. So um, I really like that. One of the things you talk about in your book, and I, I would love for you to expand on this, because I myself have absolutely seen and felt amazing results in my body from starting systemic enzymes or proteolytic enzymes, which are derived from digestive enzymes, but they are different. And can you talk about how you've used them in your practice and what they're for? Think of them as little, um, almost like little cleanup crews. If you take them on an empty stomach, if you take them on with food, they'll digest your food for you. But if you take them on an empty stomach, they actually can penetrate into your bloodstream. And these enzymes will actually help to thin the blood. They'll help clean up inflammatory debris. They're very potent as an anti-inflammatory. So they're good at, at blocking and stopping and, and helping with chronic inflammation. So a lot of people do really, really well using them, especially initially while maybe their diet hasn't been cleaned up to the degree it needed to be yet. And so they're using them as a tool uh, to feel better as they're, you know, as they're evolving their choices in their lifestyle and their diet to better themselves. Right, because a lot of grains inhibit the action of enzymes you know? And so a grain heavy diet can not only overburden it, but then you have this problem. One of the things, if I'm correct as well about these enzymes, and again, to everyone listening, these are, even though you might look up online and see that digestive enzymes and proteolytic enzymes seemingly have the same ingredients, they are different in terms of how they are made and how they are taken right? Like, so the digestive enzymes, like you said, will digest your food and same will, so will proteolytic enzymes if you take them with a meal. But if you take them on the empty stomach, they get into the system and actually work in the blood. And, you know, you talk about in your book, you know, people who are approaching type two or are already type two and that level of like sticky blood, do you know what I mean? Right. And I, I was told and read that, you know, systemic enzymes also, like you said, cleanup crew can sort of blood, you know, brush out and kind of go through and clean up the blood. Yeah, I mean, they absolutely can help with that process. And, and as you said, the, the grains themselves work as, there's actually a, a, a protein, especially wheat is very high. It's called ATI. ATI stands for amylase trypsin inhibitor. And what these are, they're grain-based proteins that block pancreas enzymatic secretion. So they will actually shut your pancreas down. That's one of the reasons why grain is just, as in and of itself, gluten aside, it's just not all that great for you to eat it in high quantities because it blocks it. It blocks your ability to digest it and other things that you're eating. And the side effect of that is putrefication of the food in your gut. In essence, your food in your gut sits there and it rots. And then all that rot byproduct feeds the wrong bacteria, changes the microbiome, and now you end up with all kinds of side effectual problems as a result. I really love your book is so uh, no, no grain, no pain. Great book for anybody who's really interested in this subject, which should be most people. I loved it. it, it it's so clear and it goes through everything from here's what you do to naturally reduce pain and inflammation. Here are all of the hidden glutens. You have a whole list of those things. Everything is so clear and laid out. And what you propose is really a 30-day program, right, at the minimum. 
And so let's talk about that. And if you can include maybe a couple of other success stories of some people who, you know, what the success was after just 30 days of eliminating the grains. And even our own Mark Sisson talks and has talked many times before about, you know, he was reluctant at first to eliminate grains because he was such a carbohydrate dependent athlete. And then when he did for just one month as an experiment, you know, everything went away <laughs> that, he, that had ailed him. And so, you know, 30 days seems to be a pretty good marker there. Can you tell us a little bit about your 30-day program? Yeah, so it's it's broken down into two segments. A 15-day program kicks off the grain-free part, meaning that cut the grain out as a main aspect of the diet. Because a lot of people get overwhelmed when we tell them everything in the in the front that needs to be eventually taken out. So we want to kind of introduce them to that 15 days because within 15 days, for most people, it's enough time to experience a dramatic reduction in inflammation and pain. And then in the in the second 15 days, we we really dial it down to some of the other potentially problematic foods. Now, um, and so some of those are the legumes and, and the nightshade vegetables that have different solenoids and chemicals in them that can that can cause you know joint inflammation and problems for many people. So so the the diet gets more restrictive in the last 15 days, primarily based on 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 my experience treating patients in the clinic with chronic pain and kind of removing some of the most problematic foods clinically that we've seen. Um, when we remove them from people's diets, they respond so dramatically well. But but it's rel- I mean it's relatively easy to follow, if you, especially if you're already following somewhat of a paleo edict or a primal edict. It's not that big of a stretch. But I will say this. There are no cheat days and there are no cheat meals. You have to give commitment to the diet for a full 30 days. And the reason why is one exposure, as little as 20 parts per million, is enough to create enough inflammation to keep that joint hurting so that you don't notice uh, the profound uh, improvements that you would. So even if you did perfect all week and then Saturday you went and you know bombed your diet for a cheat meal, you're not really going to experience the success. So this book is designed for you to, to really dive into the 30 days, but don't, don't mess around. Stick to it. What's your personal story? Obviously, you've been in the health industry for a while, but I'm assuming there was a time when you thought grains were healthy or ate them or, you know, how did this become your passion? Was it just through patience and realizing that, you know, there was something more here or do you have a personal experience to share about, you know, how it affected you physically? A little bit of both. I actually started, part of my training was in the VA hospital in rheumatology. And, you know, the story there is that this is actually how I how I got into doing what I'm doing today is that rheumatology is all those autoimmune diseases of pain, like rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis um, and dermatomyositis and fibromyalgia. So all these kind of painful autoimmune diseases that people suffer with. And, and my attending physician there, he used to be known for saying, uh, all we can do is appease their pain. Nothing we do is going to cure them. Nothing we do is going to solve their problem. And I'm like, well, you've been doing this 40 years. Why do you keep doing the same thing? If, if this doesn't work, but the drug side effects are horrendous and these people are doomed anyway, why don't we at least try something different? It only makes sense that we'd at least attempt to do that. And, um, and, and that's when I actually discovered that the only known cause of any autoimmune disease was actually gluten. And we had a perfect scientific example of that in celiac disease. But then, you know, related to that same research, I also found that if you took a patient who had autoimmune pain 
and fasted them for 24 to 48 hours, you could dramatically stop their pain. And so, you know, I, I just put two and two together as a student. I just say, hey, well, if celiac disease, if we know gluten can cause autoimmune disease and we know that fasting can stop autoimmune pain, why won't we do it? Why wouldn't we pull aside 100 patients or 10 patients and just do a trial? But um, I was told to quit exploring that and I was told uh, that I would receive disciplinary action if I continued to pursue that. So I left the hospital and that's actually that first story I told you about that little girl that she was one of my first patients in private practice. But after seeing a number of patients respond to, to diet change, I actually started to look at myself a little bit. I, I wasn't sick per se, but every night before I'd go to bed, I, I would just cough. I would cough uncontrollably for five or 10 minutes. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know why it was just happening. And so, um, you know, I, I tested myself and that, that was one of the things I noticed immediately improved was, was that chronic cough just completely went away. But one of the other things that happened to me was I lost about 25 pounds. Now, Al, I wasn't, I wasn't obese, I wasn't fat. Uh, I, I, was, I was actually in, in really good shape. And, um, but the weight I lost was visceral fat. It was around my heart, and it was around my internal uh, abdominal wall. And so um, for me, I, I lost that weight, I lost that inflammation, and I was actually at that, it was the first time in my life I'd ever really been able to get my body fat below 14%. Prior to that, it didn't matter how I trained, it didn't matter what I ate, I just couldn't get it any lower than that. And so for me, those were the two impacts uh, that I noticed personally. But beyond that, it's all stories of patients responding so dramatically that I just couldn't continue to ignore it. Yeah, the inflammation is interesting. I've I've seen it in friends and people who were heavy grain based eaters, and then and stopped and just did full force, no cheats, and just even like a couple of weeks later, they look like fifteen pounds thinner, and they didn't even exercise. You know, and it's kind of like just that drop of inflammation. You can see the difference after you see it. You know, it's almost like it becomes normal after a while. If you keep looking in the mirror, you see the same person. Then they they eliminate grains and then you see the difference and you're like, oh my gosh. And they didn't necessarily go work out every day or attempt to lose weight. But there's this amazing thing that happens, right? This just like inflammation. And I'm sure a lot of it's water weight too, but you know, a lot of the inflammation just like it's like poking a balloon and it just like you know, fizzles out and the person looks like a different person. I've seen it so many times with friends of mine who, you know, didn't think they haven't had an issue with grains and whatnot, but then kind of, you know, investigated it and realized they did. And when they did the experiment, the results were just amazing. Yeah, I mean, that the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is that grain consumption is actually also linked to asthma. And so if you're, if, especially if you're like an athlete and you're having a hard time and you're short of breath and you find that your gas tank runs out because you're not getting enough oxygen, that's one of the biggest turnaround stories. I had a woman one time, she, chronic allergies, chronic asthma, um, she actually came to see me for because she was having neck pain. But when we got through with her diet, um, she got off of all of her allergy medications. She got off of her allergy shots. She was also able to throw away her inhaler. And, um, and, and you know, now she breathes just fine no matter what season. She doesn't have, you know, the quote unquote seasonal allergies she was priorly diagnosed with. Yeah, I know someone who's um, has a chronic persistent cough and has for a couple of years. It's uh, they're someone that would never be open to eliminating grains. But when you look at their diet and you see what they eat, it's so much wheat. It's beyond imaginable. And it's just in the form of Triscuits or in the form of a little muffin here and there or cornflakes every morning. 
And I wish I could impress upon them and I can. It's just one of those people who, you know, they'll have to come to find it themselves because they just don't want to believe in it. And they actually wrote a book and made a joke in the book about, I'll have that with gluten, please, because people seem to, you know, just go, oh, this whole gluten thing's a joke. Well, this person's had a chronic persistent cough for years now that I've known them and I, I just know <laughs> what it's related to. And yet they'll they'll miss the boat entirely and continue to suffer or get worse and get put on medication. And, you know, if there's anything ailing anyone out there, try this experiment. You know, go you're, you're, you have a great website, Dr. Peter Osborne, that's O-S-B-O-R-N-E dot com and also glutenfreesociety.org. Um but you have you, you really lay it out for anyone that really wants to attempt this or feels that they have a gluten sensitivity or they're not even sure. Your book is like one of the best answers and uh, best way to delve into the subject. What else would you like to leave our audience? Uh, your book is so in depth. There's so much great information in there, and your website's really phenomenal too. What would you like to leave our audience with? I would just say I would I would challenge your audience to you know if they're not already eating in that fashion to go with it. Um, all they have is to gain. There is, I mean, there is no loss. If the diet doesn't work for you after 30 days and then move away and just, you know, you can, you can say it didn't work for me, but, um, read the book because the, you know, the reality is, is I, I really want to, I really want to emphasize that it's not just about gluten. It, you know, gluten is just the thing that catches all the press. It catches all the buzzword. And I want you and I want your audience to really, truly understand the detrimental nature of grain in and of itself and the way grain is produced and processed. And uh, understanding that, you know, sometimes we say that, um, you know, people will fail to take action unless they understand something. And I think understanding it will empower a lot of people to be able to wrap their mind around making that decision of changing their diet in a manner that's probably overwhelming to them when they don't understand it. So, so try it. And even for people that are that may have a couple of cheats here and there, and I'm not saying that 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 you can't live your life and have a few cheats of food. We, I do it sometimes, and I pay for it a little bit, but whatever. You know, I'm going to have some stuffing on Thanksgiving, uh, maybe every now and then. That's fine. But one of the things that I really love about your book is it just re-inspired me in every way, even though I know this information. And so, even for the people out there that might even be like, oh, well, I'm 80 20. You know, you might want to think about doing another round of clear-cut zero grains for at least 30 days. So tell us the mood connection, because, you know, we've talked about it before on the podcast, how the microbiome and the health of your gut is related to your brain. There's been studies. We have some understanding of this, but if you could give our listeners sort of a, a snapshot of how this works, and I, I can attest to the fact that sometimes I've had general malaise and kind of a depressy attitude a couple days after consuming grains. Um, let's talk about that brain gut connection. Yeah. So one of the, there are a lot of them really. I mean, the, the brain and the, and the gut are connected by a cranial nerve called the vagus nerve. And so there's, it's kind of a two way communication directly. They don't, it doesn't have to go through the nervous system per se. It can get a direct line right to the brain. But one of the things that happens with grain is, is this process where some of the grains are neurotoxins. So they actually will shut down nerve function. They will actually create an autoimmune response against nerves in the gut. And, uh, and subsequently, we can start to alter serotonin production. And um, serotonin, of course, uh, most people are familiar with Paxil and Prozac and some of these drugs that affect uh, depression, you know, the antidepressants. Well, we can get grain consumption affecting serotonin production that can actually lead to depression. 
We can also get grain consumption causing a chemical response in the brain. One of the one of the concepts that a lot of people talk about with grain is leaky gut, but but grain can also cause leaky brain. And this is also been that sounds studied. bad. <laughs> it is bad. <laughs> yeah. it, well, your blood brain barrier is very similar to your gastrointestinal barrier. And so what what can happen is you can you can develop basically po a porous blood brain barrier, which allows chemicals in the brain that generally don't get allowed in. And so that can start to affect mood and behavior. There's also, you know, one of the earliest known forms of gluten sensitivity. In other words, one of its nicknames is called bread madness. And that's because some of the proteins found in wheat, especially the gluteomorphins actually can affect, uh, they act as neurotransmitters, they act as neurochemicals, they can affect the mind, they can affect uh, the brain, and they can create and induce hallucination. That reminds me of the uh, Twinkie defense back in the day when that guy killed Harvey Milk and, uh, <laughs> and, and, he, and he claimed, I think it was like he claimed the BHT in it or something made him insane or something, but it's just <laughs> reminding me of that, like, you know, you overdose on some bread and then, you know, get some road rage or something. Wow, that's interesting. What were the studies or the parameters were like, what did they see, like brain madness? Like, what did that manifest itself as? Well, I mean, it manifested itself as schizophrenia. So oh the diagnosis, gosh. the diagnosis was actually, you know, before we we still many people will say we don't know what causes schizophrenia, and I and I would agree with that to a certain extent. But we do know there's an autoimmune component to schizophrenia, and we know that there's an autoimmune component to grain consumption. But we also we also have you know direct correlation that eating bread for some schizophrenics is actually what causes their schizophrenia. So technically, we could call it a pseudo schizophrenia, meaning they don't really have schizophrenia; they just have basically drug induced psychosis from the food that they're eating. So food drug induced psychosis might be a better way to describe it. But but again, when you get that diagnosis from a traditional psychiatrist who has no training formally in nutrition. There's never that correlation that gets made. I have I don't treat schizophrenia in my practice, but I have seen patients who have come to me with prior diagnoses of schizophrenia completely be able to get off of all their medications and, and live completely normally without hallucination as a result of emitting grain from their diet. Now, on that same note, L, I've seen patients with schizophrenia who, where the cause was not solely grain, so they, they weren't able to do that. So I, I, I want to be clear there. I'm not saying that all schizophrenia is caused by grain, and I'm not saying that everybody with schizophrenia should stop their medications if they go on a grain-free diet. You know, it, it definitely needs to be monitored. It's definitely something that you would want to do under the care of someone who who was well-versed in that particular condition, but there's that possibility for sure. And also, didn't you mention something in your book about the schizophrenia topic where it, it's almost like, you know, when they see across the line of a variety of diseases, we often see vitamin D deficiencies at the root of a lot of diseases and, you know, obviously inflammation. And I think there was, it was a pretty like high statistic or something about people with schizophrenia being gluten sensitive. It's a very high, and, and not only are, do we, so we, what we find is a lot of people with schizophrenia have antibodies to gliadin, which is the name of the type of gluten found in wheat, barley, and rye. And so there's a strong there's a strong correlate in the medical research, you know, with that connection as well. So I, you know, again, it's not a hundred percent of patients with schizophrenia, but it's um, it's certainly a large percentage enough for it to show up statistically in studies. 
So I can blame my multiple personalities on some brown rice. Is that, is that <laughs> <laughs> that's, Maybe, that's really yeah. the only, the purpose of this conversation is to me, excuse all of my mental, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that's really, it's really compelling. That's really fascinating, especially when we're looking at something that is seemingly so horrific and severe, like dealing with schizophrenia. And to think also too, that, you know, and, and I mean, it's true across the board, a lot of the ailments and things we're experiencing as modern day humans are all related to just, you know, what we're putting in our body. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, I mean, the definition of a drug is it's anything that makes you think, feel, or act differently. And, and food, I think perfectly fits that definition. If you, especially if you've ever, you know, just paid attention to how different foods might make you feel, you know, chocolate gets you high. If you've never had caffeine before, coffee can get you up and pumped up. If you give sugar to a two-year-old for the first time, you get a drug-like behavioral effect. So, I mean, food is a drug. We just we just have kind of lost our way of realizing how important it is to pay attention to how we feel when we eat it. I also want to throw out this other topic of, you know, some people who are like, well, I'm 80-20 or, you know, I eat mostly this. But I've heard that it really takes gluten a good like 10, 11 days or so to really get out of your system. So and whether that's true or not, and you can clarify in a minute. But it just seems like, so let's say I'm great all week and I have bread on Saturday and then I'm great all week and I have bread the next Saturday. I still am not necessarily going to get the full benefits, right, of, of, of obviously of just eliminating it entirely. But can you can you talk a little bit about like how long that lasts in the system? And you know what I mean? Because I think some people are two steps forward, one step backward when it comes to this because they're just like, oh, I just once a week I have a little something or or once every two weeks I have, you know, a muffin but that could really be major harm, even just that one muffin in that month. Yeah, so I think for, for a point of clarification, if we're, if we're talking about somebody who has the genetic receptors that look at gluten as an enemy, and that is, that's where the autoimmune diseases come from, is that genetic gluten sensitivity. If you're one of those individuals and you're getting that cheat day, you're gonna have a problem. You're actually, statistically, you'll die 26 years sooner than your counterpart. Wow. Um, yeah. And that's, that's, you know, that's a big deal. So that's right? like rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's, any autoimmunity diseases. You even mentioned lupus in your book. Um, so those people, it's like they really need to reevaluate cheats. Absolutely. So if you're one of those individuals and you're, and you're cheating, you need to consider not cheating ever. Now you asked me another question, which is how long does it stay in your system? It's more specifically, how long does the inflammatory response last? Mm after right. you get an exposure and it's up to two months. Wow. Okay. So that, hmm, hence the 30 days and even longer, if you really have a lot of pain and unresolved inflammation. Right. Exactly. You know, after this topic, I'm, I'm not cheating with one grain. <laughs> I'm not eating another <laughs> grain for the rest of my life. No, but it really is so great because we're all trying to be our best and look our best and live long, healthy, amazing lives. And so um, thank you so much, Peter. I love your book, No Grain, No Pain. It's available on Amazon. And you can also find more on drpeterosborne.com. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate all the work you're doing to help this cause, particularly because it's definitely a big problem. Well, you're welcome, Ellen. Thanks for having me on. And, and I'd like to thank you guys for all the wonderful work you're doing as well to spread the information about eating right and exercising right as, as a necessity for health. Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. Once again, really, really amazing contribution to this whole topic. Well, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. We will talk soon. Take care.
Are you someone who appreciates a fast, casual dining experience? Is it important that the taste of your food and the freshness of the ingredients take center stage? Well, bringing that experience to a table near you is the mission of the hottest new franchise concept in North America, Primal Kitchen Restaurants. If you want to learn more about this one-of-a-kind franchising opportunity, go to PrimalKitchenRestaurants.com. That's PrimalKitchenRestaurants.com.